Please turn in the Old Testament to Jeremiah 3, beginning with verse 6. God speaking through Jeremiah in the time of declension in Israel among God's people. And this is what God said. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with the decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all nations shall gather to it to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for heritage. I said how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights is heard. 
the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way, they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless sons, I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. Thus far the reading of God's word from Jeremiah. Please turn now to the New Testament. Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 4. Our focus this morning will be on verses 11 through 14, but I will begin with verse 1 to set it in its proper context. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we come this morning knowing that you have the words of eternal life and knowing that we desperately need them. We pray that you would not only help us to hear Christ speaking through his word by his spirit, but that we might by faith behold him and that he would rule over our hearts today and apply that word and change us that we might be made more like him, that the truth of who he is would be seen in who we are as your people. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
Today is the day after the 20th anniversary of that infamous terrorist attack against the United States, which we all refer to by the phrase 9-11 for the date on which it occurred. Now, during the many memorials that have been offered over the past few days, someone, and probably more than one someone, observed that on the day after 9-11, here in the United States, there were no Republicans or Democrats. There were only Americans. That was an important point, both to make and to observe, especially in light of the deep and contentious divisions that currently exist in our country, and which in fact existed just prior on September 10th. For if you will remember, the 2000 election was determined by a hanging chad, as it were, and many of the one party accused the party that won of having unfairly won tradition that has sadly continued in our political life. But these divisions that we are experiencing today are deep and visceral. Uh, it's not just disagreement. It is complete disrespect for other people, including those in positions of authority. Sadly, the church has not been immune to this kind of thinking and attitude, to this discord, and that is what makes Paul's letter to the Ephesians so important for us today. Now, Paul himself was an active and aggressive promoter of the Christian faith after himself having been an aggressive terrorist-like opponent of the Christian faith, putting Christians to death or dragging them off to prison. And now he himself was in prison because of that faith in Jesus Christ that he proclaimed. Now he cared deeply for the churches that he had planted he prayed fervently that they would prosper in his absence. And he wrote this letter to exhort them to be faithful to Christ and to keep growing in Christ's grace. When you look back at chapters 1 to 3, we find him setting forth the glory of Christ and the glory of the church. The church itself being rooted and grounded in Christ. Particularly as exemplified in the unity of its diverse members in Christ. 
both Jews and Gentiles were made one new man in him. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets where Christ is the chief cornerstone. He then portrays this as God's plan for history to reveal his glory through the church. And then he bursts into prayer that we might behold the glory of Christ and his love and that people would see Christ's glory in the church. Then beginning with chapter 4, the apostle turns from exploring the glory of Christ in his church and he then turns his attention to applying that in the lives of the churches and of their members. It's not, it's not enough to say this is true, the truth, but is the truth real? And he's saying it needs to be real in who we are if we claim to be his church. And so... In his opening words of chapter 4, he calls them to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and pointing to the triune God as the foundation for the unity that should obtain within the church. Now, as we saw last time, he grounds this call to unity and to our responsibility to pursue and promote that unity in Christ as the exalted Lord. And says that Christ himself has provided and given gifts to men as the exalted Lord. He points to Psalm 68, which is a psalm praising God as the Savior King. And in so doing, he is saying and declaring that Christ is God and possesses all his authority. And it, the particular verse he quotes, when he ascended on high, is referring to Christ's exaltation over the grave and his ascension into heaven. And it says as a glorious king that when he ascended, he gave gifts to men. That's the teaching of Psalm 68. Though in Psalm 68, it immediately says he received gifts from men, but in its broader context concludes by, by God giving power to his people. And Paul is summarizing that, that Christ is exalted. And he has to explain what it means that Christ is exalted. And that's what he does in verses 8, 9, and 10. And now he continues with that exposition of Christ, the triumphant king, by focusing now not on the words he ascended, but on the word he gave gifts. He expands on this thought, showing how the hope of church unity through Christ's gifting is to work itself out in the church as it pursues this unity. You see, in one sense, we are already united in Christ. 
Our salvation is in him. He's made that very clear in the first three chapters. What we have, we have in Christ. But what we have in Christ is not already a reality, but in our experience, it needs to be fleshed out. It needs to be perfected. Because while we have much grace, that grace is not always clearly revealed. And so as as Paul explores this thought of Christ giving gifts to his church as the hope of our unity, it's not that we have something in ourselves on our own that will help us to grow, but it is to the church that Christ gives gifts so that the church together might grow in unity. So he says here in verse 11, and makes clear that Christ embodies gifts in people for the unity of his church. In verse 11 he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now in saying and, he's making a link that his exposition of Psalm 68 as the ground of our confidence in Christ is true because of what Psalm 68 says. He's drawing our attention back to Psalm 68. In saying he, he himself, he is pointing to the immediately previous verse 10, where it says that he himself is the one who ascended into heaven. He wants us to know it is the exalted Christ who is the one who gives these gifts and that these gifts which are given to all in verse 6 or seven, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of gifts, that these gifts are not merely spiritual proclivities, but these gifts to the church are also spiritual persons. For he lists here apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. It is the, not just the spiritual talents that Christ gives, but spiritual people, people embodying these talents. And he highlights the leaders of the church. Beginning from the earliest days, the apostles and the prophets, he had previously said that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. These were the people that God used and that Christ commissioned before the church began to expand and explode around the world. And then he, he brings the focus a little bit closer to hand where he says, he gave evangelists and shepherds and teachers. What's interesting is that in his list of these five persons, 
that grammatically speaking, the shepherds and teachers are identified as overlapping, and some argue even the same person. Now, all shepherds have to be teachers. They need to be able to teach. But not all teachers are shepherds. But Christ gives leaders to his church. And because the gifts include not just our spiritual talents and abilities, but spiritual persons, he, Paul is making clear that the church, the members of the church can't go it alone. You need these other people. Christ has given people to the church. He's given the leaders to the church. And we must embrace these persons as gifts of the exalted Christ. And we live in a day where there's life tends to go in cycles. Either cycles where there's, there's great tyranny and a great grab for power by certain individuals and, and then there's a reaction against that and, and a, a, a reaction against uh, officers and leaders. And there's a little bit of that spirit today. Uh, in the world at large, and in the church as well. But what Paul is making clear is that within the church, we don't have the option of rebelling against our leaders. Now, that doesn't mean that every leader is perfect, nor does it mean that every leader is without fault. but it does mean that we need to respect the leaders that God has given. And as he discusses elsewhere in his letters to Timothy, the way you deal with leaders that may be at fault needs to be carefully handled. But here his focus is on the gifts that Christ gave. He's talking about how do we pursue unity? And the unity is that Christ embodies gifts in people. And it's interesting that while there's some disagreement among people about what, how do you exactly distinguish between the apostle, the prophets, the evangelist, the pastor and teacher, generally speaking, the apostles are recognized as ones sent by Christ who bore witness to his life and ministry. Prophets are those in the New Testament that as the apostles began going out, they didn't have the whole New Testament to dump on people at once, and so God would use prophets to speak to the people in the absence of the Scripture and, and make his word clear. But then with the completion of the New Testament canon, those offices slipped away, and then there were evangelists, and there's some discussion where evangelists part of the apostolic group that slipped away, or are they the missionaries that keep going out into new regions? And it may be that there's a little bit of both involved. And then there are the shepherds and the teachers. The Lord himself speaks of sending shepherds for his people, true shepherds in the Old Testament, and teachers to lead and to guide them. 
But the point is, is that Christ embodies gifts in people. And so we just can't immediately dismiss people if we agree with them. Though the common link between all four of the offices he specifies here is the fact that they are all having to do with teaching the word of God and administering the word of God to the people. Christ gives gifts to direct people back to his word, which is where they discover Christ's gifts and their own unity. Now what he next makes clear is that gifted people employ their gifts to serve the unity of the church. The purpose of gifts is not to exalt ourselves. The purpose of gifts is not to domineer and compete with one another. The purpose of your gifting is to promote the welfare of others, to to serve others to the end of their sanctification and to serve the church for its sanctification and its growth and perfecting. Notice in verse 12 that he gives these gifts of people to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Why were these gifts given by Christ? He gave them as it says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, in the King James Version of the Bible, there's a comma between the word saints and for the work of ministry. The thought was, is there's three prepositional phrases, equip the saints, work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, that these were three aspects of the gifted one. But later interpreters noticed that the preposition before the phrase uh, equip was different than the preposition uh, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And that those two were an expansion on equipping the saints so that the people that are gifted given by Christ, is to prepare God's people for the work of ministry. It's not the leaders do all the ministry and the church sits in the background applauding and clapping and rooting for them to win, but rather he gives these gifts so that all who have received gifts and all have received gifts, as he made clear in verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to measure of Christ's apportionment, so that all of our gifts would be used to the further growth of the church, to equip the saints to do the work of ministry so that they will build up the body of Christ, that all of us, in exercising our gifts, will be using them for the welfare, for the sanctification, for the growth. And that means that we all need one another. The apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherd teachers need people that they're equipping. 
And the people that are being equipped are the ones are being equipped so that they can do the work of ministry as servants. Because that word ministry is the word diakonia, from which we also get the word service. And a related word, deacon. So we equip the saints for the work of ministry, and it's for the building up of the body of Christ. He, he, Paul loves to mix metaphors. He's talking about the body, but he's talking about building up, as he earlier referred to it as a building. But the point is, is there needs to be growth. There needs to be sanctification. And what are we building up the body for until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God? The unity of the faith, not speaking so much of our own exercise of faith, but the faith that we share. You see, our unity is not in ourselves. Our unity is in Christ and whom God has revealed him to be. That is the faith, the faith that we share with one another, that we pass down, the objective view of faith. But it seems that the knowledge here, which is coordinate with faith, is not the knowledge about Christ, but the knowledge that we have that we might know him. Not just know about him, but that we might together be united in truly knowing him. It's very different of knowing about someone and knowing someone. You can know all about the President of the United States, but unless you know him, you're not going to get past the gates at the White House. And even if you do know him, you may not always get past the gates. But to know someone, you see, that's where our unity comes from. It's as we grow in our faith that we know more and more about Christ and what he's done and that we know him more and more personally. We use our gifts in order to serve the unity of the church in our faith and our knowledge of And so instead of using our gifts to promote ourselves, as we use our gifts for one another, but we're using them for one another to build one another up, you see, that's what connects us together. Because my gift is meant for you, and your gift is meant for me and for one another. And so in this way, in this way, the unity of the church is promoted through the diversity of gifts. Because all the gifts, whether the persons that God gives to direct and encourage the individual members or the gifts of the individual members themselves are always outward and always pointing upward to Christ. But where is this supposed to lead? Yes, to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of God, but he lifts us even higher to show that church unity is expressed 
in spiritual maturity. Notice at the end of verse 13, we attain the unity, the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God, the mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Church unity is expressed in spiritual maturity. And he makes a very clear point here that spirit, there is a corporate measure of our maturity. It's not just about me becoming spiritual myself, but as we use our gifts to build up one another, the intent is that we become, as he says here, to mature manhood. And it doesn't... Mature manhood is a good way to translate it, but the literal is to a man of maturity. Remember in chapter 2, he said in verse 15, that Christ might create in himself one new man in place of the two, Jew and Gentile. So he already envisions the church as one. And now he says here, to a mature man. He's envisioning the church as one and that maturity comes to us not just individually but as a people. And then he goes on to explain that further in saying to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, pointing us to measure our maturity not by ourselves but rather by Christ. That we are to look to him. And who he is. That we are not to compare me against you and you against me. And oh, I'm better than you because I know more scripture verses. Or, or you're better than me because you're a better prayer. Or, or you give more money. Or It's not about that. It's that we might be measured by the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ himself, we are told, would fill the universe, would extend his rule everywhere. We are to look to him and his rule as the measure of our own maturity. And it's, again, there's a corporate dimension to that maturity because we are one mature man in Christ. And as Paul so deftly does throughout this, he's, he's continual weaving plurality and singularity. He's also contrasting over against the corporate unity. He contrasts the individual disunity. Notice what he says in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cutting, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. There's one mature man, and over against that is the many immature children. And how are children 
characterized in their immaturity. One is instability and the other is by deceitfulness. They can be deceived and they do deceive. The instability, he uses the picture of waves tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine. And he just sees the world around, the waves are crashing about us and we're just tossed around. And then you have the wind just blowing this way and blowing that way. And he speaks of every wind of doctrine. He's talking about the teaching of the false teachers, picking people up and carrying them along, as it were. We're being carried along by the the vicious waves that are all around us. It is in our individuality that we are susceptible to immaturity because as individuals we only measure ourselves by ourselves. That even happens when we think we're measuring ourselves by Christ. We we lack perspective. We need the perspective of one another to speak into our lives, to point out where we're falling short. And you see this negative picture in verse 14 over against the positive picture of our unity, the mature man versus the unstable children, all serves to emphasize the importance of the gifts that Christ gave in verse 11 of those who lead and teach his people in the church. Because it is as we have those given by Christ who are to teach and to prepare God's people for ministry, it keeps keeps us going in the right direction so that we don't veer off on our own in some crazy direction. We've been reading the Bible and we've come across something and nobody's ever seen it before. There is a very, very, very small possibility that God has given you a particular insight, but there's a very big possibility is that no one's ever seen it before because it's not really there. But what prevents us from doing that? Christ gave gifts to prepare God's people for works of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. One writer says this negative picture, verse 14, is meant to underline the importance of Christ giving ministers to the church. Immaturity on the part of believers cannot be treated as a neutral state which will be outgrown in due course. It is a highly dangerous condition because it lays them open to manipulation by cunning people and the forces of error. But it is precisely for such a situation that pastors and teachers have been provided. We need one another. I need you, you need me, you all need one another because we are easily led astray. It's interesting the words that he's using uh, so negatively here in verse 14. He says, by human cunning. That word cunning is kubea. It's from uh, the noun kubei. 
which is cube, which means dice. It's the word for dice. The dicing of men and how do men play dice very deceitfully. Gambling with dice was known to be very corrupt. And so he takes that as a picture of human as opposed to God-given. Human cunning, human dice playing is always looking out for oneself. And it's easy to get caught up in that way of thinking. God has given me gifts. What are those gifts for? They're for me. I'm better than you. My gifts are better than your gifts. Let's promote me and not you. When I'm not supposed to promote me, I'm supposed to use my gift for your service so that you might grow and be perfected. Even if it means that I have to lay and expend my life and energy down. By the craftiness and deceitful schemes. Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful above all things. And even as believers, we bear remnants of that deceitfulness and we can deceive ourselves. Indeed, the deceit here spoken of is referred to, is used of Satan in 2 Corinthians 11 about his deceitful schemes. The craftiness is used the scheming in uh, chapter 6, verse 11, where our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against evil powers of darkness and deceit in the universe. We are so easily swayed in a wrong direction. But church unity is built and expressed in spiritual maturity as God gives people in order to stimulate all the people to promote their gifts for the benefit and sanctification of one another and of the church as a whole. I need to grow. You need to grow. We have unity, but we so easily allow other things to separate us. We need to keep looking to Jesus, to him who gave us the gifts we have. Maybe that some of you aren't using your gifts. If you're a Christian, you have a gift. And you need to find it and you need to use it. Not for yourselves, but it's in the act of giving that you receive. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's in the giving that we find we do receive. It's in the exercise of muscles that your muscles are strengthened. And so we need to seek the unity. We need to pursue that unity by building one another up. And by finding our unity in the faith. And in the knowledge of God that is being communicated, that we share with one another, that we promote Christ. He is the exalted head. It begins with him. He gives gifts. What do those gifts do? They bring us back to him. That's where our hope is going to be found. Not because we are great, but because we needed his grace. Because apart from his grace, 
we all would be desperately wicked. And we all would seek by deceit and cunning to promote ourselves. But Christ has come. He has been exalted. He has triumphed over the grave. He has trampled on the devil and on sin and death itself. And he offers himself to us. And he gives us gifts. May we be those who treasure the gifts he gives. Who employ those gifts in service to one another. And who find that as we do so by his grace. We do grow and become more like Jesus. Because it is ultimately Jesus who is at work through you and me. And one of, each one of us in order to shape us and make us like him. May he continue to pour out his grace. May he continue to give us gifts. And may he continue to make us more like him, that others would see Jesus in us for his glory and for the blessing of the church. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our own sinful tendency is to take what gifts we get and use them for ourselves. But that's not the way you do things. You give gifts to build up other people. And in building them up, we are ourselves built up, but they then are enabled to build us up. And what we're being built up into is the measure of the fullness of Christ himself. His stature. His perfection. Not that in this world we ever will be perfect. But that you and your perfect power are stirring in us. To make us just a little bit more looking like him who came to save us by bringing us to himself. May we, by your grace, be seen to belong to him and to one another. And may that picture of unity and maturity be for our blessing and for your glory. It's only by your grace we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.